Thanks for listening and supporting The Fall Line. We have an announcement playing at the end of the episode. Please be sure to listen so that you don't miss it. This is The Fall Line. Over the past year, we've scheduled long-form interviews with experts involved in different aspects of true crime, media, law enforcement, forensic science, advocacy. We hope to give our listeners insight into what these specialists do and how they do it and why. The next interview in this series is with Dr. Amy Michael, a forensic anthropologist and lecturer at the University of New Hampshire. We became friends with Amy while working with the Transdo Task Force. Amy has been kind enough to offer us her expert advice on a few cases. You heard her commentary in Season 8 on both the Richland County Jane Doe case and the Glen County Jane Doe case. We spoke to Amy in the spring of 2020 and had such an interesting conversation that we wanted to share all of it with you. So we're releasing this interview in two parts. We hope you'll enjoy learning about forensic anthropology, Amy's work, and what she wishes people knew about her discipline. First, please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to study forensic anthropology. Did you go to college with this particular career in mind? No, I did not. So I definitely don't have one of those, you know, I I always knew I wanted to be uh, whatever stories. I had no idea what I wanted to be. I feel like some days I still don't really know. So I went with zero plan. I'd never heard of anthropology. I'd never taken an anthropology class. I definitely could not have told you what that was at age 19. And I remember taking a prehistory class and I nearly failed it, but I was like, this material is really interesting. I just had no idea how to study. I just was not a good student. Um, but I was like, you know, wow, I'd never really thought about the human past before. You know, I'd gone to museums and stuff, but I'm from a really rural, small town, and it just was, like, not on my radar whatsoever. And so eventually I got into a biological anthropology class, and um, that professor just totally, like, absolutely changed how I thought about the world. I started learning about evolution for the first time at age, like, 19 or 20, because I went to one of those totally insane high schools that doesn't allow you to learn about evolution. You know, we just like talked about plants for nine weeks instead or something. You know, it was abstinence only, uh, a bunch of crazy stories from that, you know, and um, I just had never thought about it. I never thought about where humans came from, what came before us, what human ancestors were. It was all like this kind of um, like distant fossil idea that I hadn't really ever kind of actualized in my life. And so listening to this professor that I really liked and I really respected talk about this stuff. It was just like totally mind blowing to me. And I remember the thing that stuck out to me most. And I was like, okay, I want to be an anthropologist was the week that we talked about race and ancestry. And he came in and the first thing he said was race doesn't exist. And he said it with such like conviction um, and told us how it was a social construct that I, I was like, I've never, I've never thought about this in my life. And I knew that 
being a racist was wrong, but I didn't understand how biological race is actually an invalid concept. And I, I can see students that I teach today being like blown away by that too. And they like really glom onto it and are excited about it because it actually helps you fill in all these things that you like kind of know are, are not the right way to approach the world, but you don't know why yet. And so I have to thank that professor so much for that. And so, um, you know, and like the, like, hubri of youth I went up to him and was I was like I think I want to work in your lab I was a terrible student like I said and I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't really know why I wanted to work in his lab aside that I thought that skeletons were just cool and I think he kind of <laughs> was like uh okay um because I was really unlike any of the other students who work in his lab who had you know some concept of what they wanted to do and maybe could like tell you uh, what they wanted to do. But anyway, he let me work in his lab and we talked a lot about um, just what kind of data that you can get from skeletal remains. We talked about ethics. We talked about Neanderthals and human ancestors. And, um, you know, somewhere along the way, I learned about forensic anthropology, even though it wasn't taught at the uh, school that I went to for undergrad. And it just kind of checked all those boxes for me. I knew I liked the human past, but I also was really interested in how to apply skeletal data and information to the present or modern forensic cases. So I think, you know, all up, I'd consider myself a biological anthropologist because I'm just as interested in using skeletal data to ask questions about our shared human past, um, questions about archaeological sites. Uh, I'm just as interested in that as I am in solving or resolving present um, modern forensic cases. So that's the really long-winded answer to no, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I stumbled into it, and I luckily had um, good mentors who kind of, I think, were like, well, you're a total weirdo, but like you seem like you want to show up every day to this lab, so they allowed me in and let me kind of figure out what I wanted to do from there. And I'm like, honestly, I cannot imagine being anything other than an anthropologist now. Every forensic anthropologist who we've spoken to has told us that they've been shaped by their mentors and the field experiences they had in grad school. Can you talk about some of the people who shaped your career and the field experiences that you had with them? Yeah, I think that I am particularly lucky. I, I have really good friends, great friends that I made in graduate school that are going to be my best friends for life. And some of them have not had um, the mentorship that I've had. I always want to be in the room. I want to come to the lab. You know, for me at the time, the, going into a lab was sort of like this meditative experience where I just got to go and I just, I really loved, it was like that pure, like, you know, when you really find something that you like and you just purely want to do it and, and like, spend your time doing that. So I spent my summers excavating my, these Maya caves and rock shelters, something I thought I would, like, never, ever do. And it's it has been so, uh, like, truly a very cool experience to do. So I was really fortunate to have two great mentors in the disciplines that I care most about, bioarch and forensics. Um, and Norm took me on cases that like, really, really do stay with me to this day, and some I think about regularly, um, some I wonder about the victim's families, some I kind of see when I daydream, some I would like to forget. Um, learning about these cultures so removed in time and space from our own, you know, these are all things that I was very grateful to have, and so I had these great uh, mentors that allowed me to have these experiences, like living communally with them and running from like wild animals in the jungle and having these really bizarrely powerful experiences of 
you know, exhuming a cold case victim from a grave or the powerful experience of like seeing a thousand year old pot that you're digging out of the soil next to a human skeleton, you know, because the pot was placed there as a grave offering. These things that like on my own, I would have never gotten. So I really appreciate their mentorship. And so both of my dissertation advisors were men, but the female professor that I would say like shaped me the most, her name is Dr. Lynn Goldstein. She's a mortuary archaeologist and she had a completely outsized effect on me personally and professionally. And um, she extended me this act of kindness that I've thanked her for profusely, but I, I don't know if she'll ever truly understand how much this helped me. She employed me for six years in a campus archaeology program in addition to the um, teaching assistantship job that I had, and that gave me financial freedom in a sense. Um, this second job that she gave me so regularly, it allowed me to go home to see my family. It allowed me to pursue personal relationships that I had to travel to, um, to you know, maintain. And so in a real way, by giving me that job, she gave me professional experience, but she also gave me this kind of personal boost. And I didn't have to worry as much about finances during graduate school because of her. Um, and she became my friend. You know, I would say that we were friends for sure. And she's the person I think of most when I encounter any kind of difficult professional situation of which I've had many since graduating. The reality is that Lynn showed me how to do the most important things first and everything else can wait. And she like gave me the ability to be like, you know, you don't have to do this. I think we feel like we have to do things so much in academia or in graduate school or to get a job or whatever. And she said, you don't have to. And I was like, oh yeah, wait, I do actually get the ability to determine my own kind of schedule post-graduation. So she allowed me to, to get outside of that culture of competition that I think grad school creates in us. And she cut through all that. Um, and I think that because of, you know, these combined mentors, Norm, Gabe, and Lynn, I have figured out how to advocate for myself and students. But, you know, I model my professorship after after Lynn, and I try to create opportunities for students in the way that she did for me. And I think by extension, um, you know, that advocacy then that bleeds into your research, too. And so that I think I see those direct connections between um, like how I was mentored to how I mentor to how I choose um, cold cases to work on and things like this, because there is that thread of advocacy and justice running through all of it. I think that's kind of like the mark of a really good mentor. Yeah, that you just you just do the thing and then your students are the ones that recognize how impactful it was. And then, right. they, and then they do the thing. It wasn't like she was giving us a lesson, you know, giving, being like, giving us a lesson or anything. It was just like, damn, this woman is super powerful. And like, she's not the woman who's going to like give you a hug or anything, but she is going to support you like indefinitely. And I just was like, yeah, that's who I want to be, you know? Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, These things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps, so for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. 
It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The New Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, N-U-C. ALM.com. Fall N U C A L M.com. So, do you have an area of specialty and how did that focus develop? It's called um, histology. So, histology is the study of tissues at a microscopic level. So, those tissues can be anything, you know, those can be soft tissues, it can be hair, or whatever. Um, but since I am a biological anthropologist, I, I'm interested in hard tissues, you know, the things that remain after deaths. So, this can sound kind of like boring and tedious, and it's definitely tedious. The setup process is tedious, um, but I think it's actually really fascinating. So I had an internship at uh, what's now called DPAA, or the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. This is the largest forensic anthropology lab in the world in um, Honolulu, Hawaii. When I was in graduate school, I went there for a summer and I learned firsthand how many cases are really challenging um, and that uh, might actually need the, the use of histology. So these might be cases that are just really small bone fragments, you know, little chips of teeth. Maybe they're burned, maybe they're compromised in some other way from being left outside for years or decades. And so histology allows us to get into this really fine detail that we might not see if we just observe remains on the surface or macroscopically with our eyes. And I think that ultimately, you know, why did I feel drawn to learn this, like, very tedious kind of um, hyper-specific method. I think that generally I feel drawn to cases that seem futile. So, you know, my specialty developed out of that. You know, it's like, okay, we have one little chunk of burned bone. Is it even human? Is it even bone? Um, I wanted to work on stuff like that. So I I pursued histology because I wanted to work on these cases where it seemed like, you know, there there wasn't anything to work with that, you know, you should just put it in a box on a shelf and just be like, you know what, some things you just can't do. And certainly there are plenty like that, but, you know, I like the idea of, um, like, I'm a completist. Like, I want to try every single thing to get something resolved or to get information out of a case or whatever it is that we're looking at. And histology kind of fulfilled that for me. And then, honestly, I picked it, too, for a selfish reason is in that, you know, no one else was really doing it. There are still, you know, uh, just a handful of people in forensics that do histology. Um, it's just not as popular as, you know, another specialty, like maybe, uh, you know, sex estimation or trauma analysis. And I figured I should start to differentiate myself in graduate school so I can maybe get a job on the other end of it. Um, but ultimately, I just, I like microscopes and I like being able to sort of, it sounds so corny, but like, 
peek into this other world, as it were, that we just can't see otherwise. And, you know, the as a scientist, there are just these limitless questions it feels like you can ask when you start to use a method that is not used as um, as much as maybe some other. So it, it kind of fulfills all that stuff for me. Um, and that's why I chose to specialize in it. Can you tell me a little more about how you apply that in your work? Sure. So histology can give us much better resolution in things that forensic anthropologists traffic in, like age at death estimates and maybe even health experience. So in addition, if there's a question um, from law enforcement, if something that they bring us is even bone or not, that's always a question too, right? Is the small fragment um, even bone? Lots of things mimic bone. You know, I've been brought like uh, old porcelain plates, um, uh, like PVC pipes, all kinds of stuff, um, lava rock, uh, these things that might mim- mimic bone. Histology can uh, help us with that too. And sometimes we're fooled as well. I've ha- had a few cases of people finding um, what they think are bone, like bone fragments in their food. And, you know, we'll t- we would take a look at it at the lab and be like, man, it man, it really does look like bone. I don't know if it's human bone or not. We'd cut it, look at it under the microscope, use the principles of histology and be like, yeah, it's definitely not. We can tell pretty pretty instantly under the microscope if what we're looking at is um, a bone and if it's human or non-human bone. So we can use histology to confirm the answers to those questions. Um, and I get asked by law enforcement a lot about this, you know, about, hey, is this bone that we found in the woods or that a hiker found, is this even human or not? Should we open up a case? Um, is a small fragment that we found in someone's sump pump, is that human bone? Like, is that a potentially forensic situation or not? Um, so if the fragment is small enough and it doesn't have any diagnostic parts that an osteologist might see, I can still use histology to hopefully give law enforcement an answer, um, to if they need to open up a case or not. I know from our previous conversations that you're particularly interested in tackling cold cases that have received little attention. How does that inform the work you do and the examinations you take on? So at the risk of sounding kind of soapboxy, I think that a lot of my interests in particular cold cases stems from this sort of like righteous anger in a way. Um, I'm really bothered by cases that seem solvable but have not been for a variety of reasons. And of course, those variety of reasons are things that, you know, you talk about on this podcast a lot. Um, Maybe law enforcement wasn't interested in a case involving a person from a marginalized community. Maybe the case is in a rural part of the country without many resources. You know, there are all these reasons that um, a case might go cold that have nothing really to do with clues or evidence. You know, it might have these external factors too, the social factors. As an anthropologist, I'm really interested in those social factors. And I like to like narrow down on some of those. Um, And, and I think that, you know, I, I just, I just am, you know, I think it's like, again, at the risk of sounding kind of corny, it's like those punk roots where you're like, no, I really want these, like, these hard to solve, seemingly impossible, marginalized cases where, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of um, people giving up on them. And so those are the ones that I, I just feel most personally drawn to. Of course, that is not to say that every single forensic case Um, and victim is not worth pursuing. Of course they are. And the sad reality is that there's no shortage of cold cases in America. So um, when we're thinking about, you know, being professionals, selecting the cases we want to work on or the cases we want to research, you know, or the cases that you cover on this podcast or that I contact law enforcement about, you know, I think that uh, 
again, we do kind of get to choose because there are so many to choose from. And I hate to say that, but I think we all know that. Um, so I, f I feel most drawn to the, the seemingly hopeless ones. Like I said, you know, the skeletal remains that are sitting on a shelf in an anthro lab, um, that have been relegated to a study collection because no one believes it's possible to solve the identity. Those bother me. Um, cases that are a single element washed up on a beach or found in the woods or something like this. Those really bother me. Um, cases like, you know, oh, you know, my granddad or whoever passed away and he had the, these five skulls in the attic and I don't want them anymore and what should I do with them? You know, that, that stuff bugs me. Um, the cases where you just kind of get this, it's hard to put it into words, but you get this feeling that something is off, right? Maybe the sex estimation didn't get um, calculated right in the early 90s or something, or the age estimation or something we can improve on, or there's, there's some element that's making this identification not happen. Uh, I seek those out as well. Any cases where remains have been fragmented, burned, otherwise altered by a perpetrator to obscure an ID, I mean, th that's where some of the, some of the, like, you know, righteous anger, like I talked about, comes in where you're looking at it, at it being like, you know, how dare you? Okay, I really want to, I really want to figure out um, what happened in this per, or what happened to this person, but, but more importantly, who they were. Um, and so, you know, the cases that feel so solvable, too. You know, a person is, is found shortly after their death. They're still physically recognizable, but nobody came forward to claim them, maybe because they died far away from where they lived, or maybe because they have no family, or they're, they're, they have, um, you know, no one to support them. The, those are all kind of the elements that stick out to me when I'm looking for cases. But um, honestly, you know, it, it is not until recently that I have sought cases out. Usually they come to us, right, through law enforcement. But I've started to believe, um, with the success of a couple cases that I really advocated for, I've started to believe that I need to be proactive and reach out to law enforcement and say, like, hey, you know, I know I don't even live in your same state, but here's who I am, here's what I do, and I think I can help. And in the past year or so, I've gotten a great response from that, and I think that that's more uh, sort of evidence for myself personally that okay, if I care about this, if I care about these types of cases, other people will. Um, and I shouldn't just wait for them to like flood my inbox. You know, I should go out and, and advocate for them on my behalf and see if I can help. Are you really approached by people who have found human remains in their relatives' homes? Yep. Yes. I've worked a lot of cases like that. Um, and often, it'll be a situation where, um, you know, this is, this is, you know, I'm about to sound like a real, you know, kind of curmudgeonly anthropologist right now, but we have, I think in general, this disconnect that's related to time since death. And if, if, if something feels old enough, it doesn't feel as important, right? So if you wouldn't, if you're, if your grandfather, if your, you know, parent or somebody had a bunch of like recent, you know, like heads in their attic that had like tissue on them and stuff, you'd be mortified, right? You'd call the police. That would be terrible. But if there's some old skulls that look like, oh, maybe they're, maybe they're Native Americans that, you know, they found pot hunting in a cave or something and they brought them back, that feels less important to people a lot of the time. And as an anthropologist, I can say it's not, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe that's less important at all. So I think that, um, yeah, we, I've gotten cases where people have found, um, things in their attic or their basement or their backyard or um, one of my most recent cases, a student brought me a skull from, uh, I, 
I don't know if I can say it, but she brought me a skull. <laughs> and, uh, you know, cause, because she was in my forensic anthropology class, and she thought it might have been a Halloween prop, and then she looked at it a little closer, and she was like, I think it might be real. And so she brought it to me literally in her book bag, brought it into my office, and was like, I wanted, you know, we're learning about this in class, and I wanted to know if this was real or not. I was like, yeah, it definitely is, and now we're calling the medical examiner. <laughs> so, um, you know, people are collectors, and they will go out and collect bones and um, display them on shelves. I've seen, like, skulls that bongs were made out of and all kinds of stuff that people eventually turn in. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, they some know better, most don't. But um, I would say that that's not uncommon to have you know, just not even law enforcement bring you human remains, but just people. I get emails all the time about like, hey, I found this these bones in the woods. Do you think these could be, you know, Maura Murray's remains or something like that? Um, and, you know, they're not. They're like cow bones or something. But um, yeah, they people find us. And uh, I think with, with the advent of like uh, bones and CSI and all that stuff, like people at least, some, some, some people know even like kind of what an anthropologist does. So I've been brought like rocks, are these dinosaur bones? Which I'm not qualified to say. I have no idea if they're dinosaur bones or not. But I can tell you if it's a rock. Um, I've been brought. I've been brought things where people are like, I think this is. These are alien remains, and it's like, no, I or probably not. But wow. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Yeah, mummies. One time we got a mummy off eBay. That there, there's so many levels of messed up to that. Yep. That it's hard for me to even process. It's, it's like, it often feels, kind of doing forensic work sometimes feels like you're doing this, like, community teaching project where you're like, uh, you know, no, you really should care about if you have Native American human remains in your house, and here's why. And once you explain to people, hey, this is unethical and, um, you know, in my opinion, immoral, um, to have human remains in your house, once you explain that to people, I think that they usually tend to get it. I mean, not everyone, but they usually tend to get it and be like, oh yeah, okay, I never really thought about that. Like, I never really thought that this skull was actually a living person who might not have wanted to be, like, displayed on my shelf um, or made into a candle holder or whatever else I've seen. Um, but until you explain that to them, I think that people just don't have that literacy around it. And so you have to kind of, um, you know, extend that to... Uh, extend that sort of empathy to people where um you're like well I'll take this as like a, a learning moment or a teaching moment for you and um you know because I didn't know it either I, I'm sure that if somebody gave me a skull at age 18 I would have been like oh sick and I would have put it on my shelf and been like cool I have a skull because I wouldn't have even connected it to being a like a real person um and I think that that's I, I see that disconnect a lot in my line of work so you touched on this a little bit already um, by telling us that you do work with law enforcement, but can you tell me more about the kind of work they tend to approach you for? Yeah, so it depends on the case, the state, the jurisdiction. Um, but of course, most off, I think the most often request from law enforcement is, hey, could you take a look at this picture and tell us if these skeletal remains are even human or not? Sometimes they'll just ship you a box and be like, hey, can you f help us figure out if these are human or not? I'd say that's the majority of cases, you know, should we even start looking at this as a forensic case or not? You know, and the second you tell law enforcement that what they're looking at is 
non-human, you know, they, they don't care at all. And you just usually keep the remains as part of your comparative osteology collection for your students. And then I would say the second um, kind of thing that we do most is determine if something is bone or not. So if we uh, get a case into a lab, we go through something called an identification hierarchy. And the first question we ask is, is this even bone? If we answer yes to that, we move on to say, is it human bone? If we answer yes to that, we move on to, is it modern human bone? You know, is this uh, from a, a Native American, a prehistoric Native American? Is it from a historic burial? I'm up here in New England. We have historic burials like everywhere. I mean, there's a historic cemetery outside of a Taco Bell down my street. So um, if we answer if the remains are probably modern, then law enforcement gets involved with, with it as a potential forensic case. So the majority of cases that I get, I would say, are just kind of these like fact-finding missions from law enforcement. And then if they are uh, modern human remains, then we often get asked to do something called a biological profile, which is an estimation of sex, of age, of ancestry, um, and of stature. And then I, I don't do trauma analysis, so I would bring in one of my colleagues for that if there uh, was trauma to the, to the remains. Um, but we essentially look look at whatever we have. It's often very rarely is it a full skeleton. Um, and we sort of go through what we can tell law enforcement. And hopefully that will um, generate this biological profile so that they can narrow down who the person is um, potentially on their end to and start looking through missing persons lists or things like this. Um, and then kind of an extension of that, it, we were talking about methods earlier. Um, I'm trying to develop these histotaphonomy methods, which basically are looking at the, it's the microstructural study of what invades bones and teeth during decomposition processes. So this, I hope, might help us eventually with timing and post-mortem interval so we can maybe tell law enforcement, hey, not only is this um, a, a white female aged 30 to 40, but from what I see with the bacterial or fungal invasion um, of the remains, she may have been dead for X amount of time, right? So like that's that's what you should, everyone should be doing in, in um, biological and forensic anthropology is trying to not only do what we know how to do, which is, you know, estimate age and sex and all of that, but um, develop methods and test them to see if we can answer these other questions that often are just kind of um, very difficult to answer with skeletonized remains. It's, it's hard to answer how long somebody has been dead um, when, when they are totally skeletonized. Okay, so this is the question that I wanted to ask you first as soon as we set up this interview. How does a forensic anthropologist approach to the analysis of remains differ from a pathologist? So how do the two different disciplines complement each other in terms of helping to create a full picture of a decedent? So this is a great question and one that I feel um, people have a lot, students have a lot too. Um, so a forensic anthropologist is going to be interested in hard tissue remains, so bones and teeth. We really have nothing to say about soft tissues. We're not trained on that. I, I couldn't. I mean, I was a morgue tech a million years ago, um, but I, I, I don't know what I'm looking at. You know, I don't know how to tell if a heart has heart disease or something like that. That is the job of a pathologist. So a pathologist is going to be interested in soft tissue. And then very critically, here's a very critical difference, is that they are responsible for cause and manner of death. So they will tell, you know, they will be the official word on the cause of death and the manner of death. 
the anthropologists can weigh in on the hard tissue. We're not going to say anything about cause or manner, but we're going to be able to help the pathologist determine the timing of injuries. So we're, we're if we're talking about skeletonized remains or, you know, just skeletal uh, remains with, with tissue still on them, um, some, an anthropologist trained in trauma analysis can tell you about blunt force trauma, gunshot wound trauma, um, sharp force trauma, and they're going to be able to weigh in on if injuries were received uh, perimortem or at or around the time of death, antemortem before death, and they're healed. We see that in, in um, osteogenic reaction in bone. Or if they're postmortem, and this might be just um, you know, breakage that mimics trauma, but it's just from being left out in the woods or maybe submerged or something like that for a period of time. So together, the pathologists and the anthropologists can create an important timeline for law enforcement. Together, they can resolve an identity, but really the difference is, is that we're looking at different tissues and the pathologist has the added responsibility of cause and manner of death. We'll continue with Amy's interview next time when we'll discuss her biggest cases, what she wishes people knew about forensic science, and how she really feels about the TV show Bones. Plus, why forensic anthropology is such a popular subject in universities today. We hope you'll join us then. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support the show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store. We want to share a piece of news about another show that you might enjoy. Fall Line host Laura Norton and producer Maura Curry have launched a new independent podcast called One Strange Thing. It's a compact, immersive narrative show that explores mysterious local news stories from all over the United States about regular people, just like you and me, who have had extraordinary experiences that can't quite be explained. Please stay tuned for just a moment to hear the promo now, then head over to One Strange Thing and subscribe. You can find a link in our show notes. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.